Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Secrets, cover-ups, and strange phenomena. UFOs and ideas that challenge reality itself. All these mysteries, all this time. Are we ever going to get to the bottom of these? My name is George Knapp. I dig into news stories that others can't or won't. I'm Jeremy Corbell, and for some reason, people tell me things they probably shouldn't. And this is Weaponized. Weaponized. This is Weaponized. I'm George Knapp. This is Jeremy Corbell. We are here in the belly of the beast in the heart of Hollywood. And today we're going to be talking about movies with a special guest. We, we are going to be talking about movies, but I am particularly excited to have John Long here because you guys have known each other for decades. Is that correct? Decades. Decades. So if anybody on planet Earth has more dirt on George Knapp, it's going to be John Long. So I want to get into how you know each other. That's why I'm excited. UFOs, movies, that's cool. I want to learn a little bit about what you know about George. There's plenty of dirt uh, to dig up. Uh, we have a policy of mutually assured destruction. Uh, right. Our that's friendship, right. that's, that's right. the basis of our friendship from over the years. I thought maybe we would talk about John and the, his company before we get into where the bodies are buried. Um, you are uh, the co-founder of a company called Buddha Jones. It's one of the biggest trailer producers in uh, in Hollywood. You worked on some massive projects, some really interesting prestige projects. I want to know if you could tell us how you got into uh, writing trailers and producing trailers, what Buddha Jones does, how big it is, what a big player it is, and we'll talk about some movies. Well, first of all, it's great to be here, guys. Yeah. I just want to say, and, and I also want to say that when you look back on this episode and you think, my God, this is a ratings killer, it's you guys that thought of this idea. But no. Um, and the other thing, to speak to your point, I mean, I'm not an expert in the stuff you guys do. I love this show. I love what you're doing. But I do think I'm an expert in what I think is the most exotic and mysterious life form on this planet. And that's George Knapp himself. <laughs> uh, yeah, 45 years. We'll get to that. He won't brag. He's, he's like you. Tell him a little bit about John. Uh, Buddha Jones is one of the two or three, maybe the top uh, producer of movie trailers, movie TV trailers in the whole world. You know, we are here in the heart of the, the, the movie industry and TV industry in Hollywood. And John is a modest guy, but the, the work that he's done, I mean, millions of people have seen it. I mean, people who are following our show will be familiar with the, the, this title. It's called Nope. It was a Jordan Peele movie, came out a year or so ago gets into alien life forms, ET life, uh, uh, cowboys. Uh, it's a very exotic, cool, original film. 
you did the trailers for it, right? We did, yeah. I mean, and just backing up a step, I mean, the trailer business is this really interesting, pretty anonymous, but important part of the landscape of, of, of entertainment because we do what the studios want their products to be, which is a condensed version of some piece of art that is artistic itself and excites people to see more. And yeah, we've had the good fortune of working on a lot of different movies over, over the years. We started the company at the end of 2004, so we've been in business now for 18 years. And as you mentioned, we worked on Nope. Recently, we finished trailers on Thor and a movie called Black Adam. We're finishing the trailer for Flash. That's a lot of those obviously are in the superhero vein, but we do a lot of movies with specific filmmakers as well. We've worked with, we have the, the great privilege of working with Quentin Tarantino on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and going back even farther, we worked with them on uh, Glorious Bastards. We've worked with Chris Nolan on um, Dunkirk and uh, we've worked with James Wan on the whole sort of, um, uh, all the different conjuring, the, that universe of movies. And so it's a, it's a great, privileged sort of place to be and uh, yeah so well, you co-founded the, the firm when and and with whom so we started we started the company in 2004 there were four partners three of us were creative and one was the financial guy we had eight people in the company so we had four partners eight people we were a little top heavy and uh, <laughs> we moved into this this little space in in um, in Hollywood right off sunset right underneath the Hollywood sign and it was like 5,000 square feet. And we started at the very end of 2004. And we did what we did. We decided we were going to come in and try to be different. Everybody says they want to be different, but, but really try to do bold shit that's unexpected. How would, how would you do something differently than, than other people in your industry? What would that look like to you? Let me give you an example. So we started... When we started, we weren't working on top movies the way we are now. But pretty soon after we, we started the company, within a, new, a year easily, we started working on this movie called Jackass 2. And, you know, I'm sure your uh, uh, viewers are familiar with it. It's just a bunch of dumb shit guys doing really stupid things. Yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's like Johnny Knoxville. Johnny Knoxville. Guys, you know. Let's let's go to a bad margarita, Steve. Oh, this is Jackass. All these guys, you know. Let's 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 go to a a, a restaurant, uh, you know, and, and and snort wasabi and then throw up into our plate or you know that kind of stuff. And so we're working on the sequel to the first movie, which was a big hit. And we knew that the magic was these guys and how stupid they were and all the stuff they would do. But we didn't need to tell the audience that, right? Because they had already seen it. And what we're now going to tell them the sequel is that, but it's, you know, a little more. I mean, so we were sitting around thinking to ourselves, what is it we have to do to make this movie feel different? Different. And as we were tossing ideas around, somebody was like, can you imagine what like the Christian coalition thought of this first, the, the first movie when it came out? I'm like, yeah, we should do a little research. So we went back and we looked at, we did some research on what people were saying about the first movie. And we had our idea. We're going to do the anti-trailer movie sell for this movie by 
taking all the bad press that the that the first movie got and putting it into our trailer. And so we put this script together and we decided let's not just make it the anti-trailer, let's make it really elegant. Let's let's do it as a story and it's narrated by let's get the guy who did the Nova voice. Let's get Will Lyman. And so imagine showing all these slow-mo black and white images from the first movie. You don't even know what the hell it is, but it's super cheap. But it but it looks kind of stylized and cool. And you've got this guy, Will Lyman, in his stentorian voice saying, when it was released in 2002, people were outraged. You know, slow-mo of some stupid shot. A new low. A plunge into depravity. A sick, twisted, repulsive spectacle. Unfortunately for them, we've just made number two. <laughs> and and literally, when we, we put the script together, we had Will Lyman read it. We're reading him, uh, you know, in the booth. He gets down to the, we made number two, he cracks up. And we're like, okay, we might have done something right. But the point I'm trying to make is, that's what we tried to do right. going out the gate. So, so you're you're kind of like an intelligence agency for the movie business in that you do deep research and investigation <laughs> into how to provoke a response from audiences around the world. I I, I love your emphasis on intelligence. I'm not sure that part of it applies, but <laughs> but it's absolutely true. It's like how do you look at the guts of this thing? Yeah, and try to make it different, like. And why, uh, and why different? Because you want people to engage it, obviously to watch it, but also because people want to see something different these days. They, they're, they're bored I, of something I or think, what is it? I think people do. I mean, you know, look, I, I read this great book. It's called Hitmakers and it was talking about the art of creating commercial art. And, and he was talking about music mostly, but I saw the applications to what we do in trailers because his big thesis was if you want to create something cool and new, you have to have an element of the expected and an element of the unexpected. And it's the merger of the two things. So in other words, there has to be some grounding. Say it again, the, the, the element of the expected yeah, and he's unexpected. Like, you, he, he, I think he said something like, you have to make the expected unexpected and the unexpected expected. And that's kind of what it, is like if you don't have some grounding it's just chaos and if it's too obvious like we've all watched anything trailers when you're like oh okay i see where this is going okay i know what this is oh this is what it oh i've seen it i don't need to see it again you know as a movie fan i love trailers i, I there was a theater in berkeley when you and i first knew each other yes that would once a month they would have a day of just playing trailers because a hardcore movie fan you love it it is an art form this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
is your company just a trailer house? Buddha Jones, is it, or have you, we're going to talk more about that maybe, but is your bread and butter trailers? We've, it's a great question. We've tried to keep in our sort of wheelhouse, what do we do that's really great and unique? And that's that short form storytelling, in this case for entertainment. So we, we started, when we started the company, there was really no such thing as TV streaming. So we were in, we wanted to be in the movie business. And there was broadcast and other forms of entertainment, but we stuck with, with the movie business. And since that time, we've, by necessity and by interest, we've, there's so much great uh, television streaming content out there that we've gotten, that we've uh, broadened into. Uh, we've got a really robust and wonderful uh, team that works on marketing for uh, games. And then, you know, we've had, we've, we've worked with people who are interested in getting that theatrical reflection, that glow on their brand. For example, we worked with uh, Universal Music and Paul McCartney on the, the release of his third solo uh, album, which as you which he doesn't tell me until six months after it's over with. Which, but that's okay. Yeah, I mean, this is all part of the anonymous feature of our business. We have to be really low key. Okay, so so tell me about that. When 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 I've entered John's facilities, it's like more than when we have to go into secret facilities. You have us card. I swear to God, you're scanning our eyeballs. So why is that? Because trade secrets leak out. That's it's, a big it's, deal. It's, it's trade secrets, but it's really the IP. So these companies, these studios, these clients, they entrust you with what is a billion dollar investment in many cases for them, hundreds of millions of dollars, certainly. And it's the easiest thing in the world for these days for that shit to leak out on the internet. Right. And so they're incredibly proprietary and the hoops that we that you're going through or the hoops that we have to go through to make sure that we protect that IP. Uh, for example, we were going to work on this movie, uh, uh, Ready Player One. That's so and, funny you mentioned that. Uh, Do you want to tell them why? Real no, quick? wait, we'll come back to it. And we hadn't done work, much work. I think we had done some, but not much work with Steven Spielberg. And there were other agencies that were on it. And I got a call from our client saying, we really want you to be on this project. We think you can bring something unique to it. In fact, we ended up finishing a trailer for it. But you need to write Stephen a personal note uh, assuring him that you're going to protect this IP. Steven Spielberg. Yes. And I was more than happy to basically say to one of my great idols that not only are we going to protect this with every molecule of our being, we are going to celebrate the fact that we as a collective creative team uh, can bring something unique to this. And this is a, an absolute, you know, thrill. And uh, you can rest assured that, that you have my word that this will be protected. And so that's, you know, the level of, of, you know, uh, there's only so much you can, assurance you can give people, but, but they have to know that you are personally connected to 
preserving that, that relationship. It's so easy in the digital age right now to break that trust, even if you try to protect it, that you have to lock shit down to the point where we walk in, we're basically being eyeball scanned, right? Yeah. Okay. So the reason I bring it up is because I know that a lot of people have asked you for influence in their movies. Mm -hmm. um, I know that because personally, I know people that have come to John and been like, hey, not just a trailer, like, can you unfuck our whole movie? It's horrible. But so you, you, you consult with people on a creative level more than just creating a product or a brand identification in a trailer. I know for a fact that you've helped consult people on movies to try to unfuck their yeah. whole movies. Yeah, I mean, so that sort of leads into a broader conversation around where we've, all, we're, we're sort of trending as a, as a creative organization because our focus is always the, the marketing, but over the past four or five years, we've also begun to branch into production on some level and working with producers on their projects, looking at scripts at the, at the foundational level, sort of taking those ideas down to the studs, giving them ideas of how, uh, how the project could be perhaps reconceived and you know, adding some marketing ideas that will help and, and it's, uh, you know, when you, we're not miracle workers, you can't, but, but, but I think we're, I think we're really like-minded creative, uh, uh, artists who, who, who want, who want to see uh, an idea be, uh, developed the best possible way. Uh, so I'd like to talk about the, uh, the creative process and herding cats, uh, you, you, you hire really creative people, yeah, independent right. thinkers. We've been to your building, you know, your facility a couple of times, and there's a there's a feeling of a culture there that it's fun. Everybody works hard, but it's fun. How do you attract them? How do you keep them? And um, tell us about the culture of Buddha Jones, because we've seen glimpses of it where you take the whole company on a trip to Las Vegas or Cancun or something like that. When we started the company, as I said, our our primary focus was how do we create some unique artistic creative brand but it became really clear to us very quickly that the work is the people and and a great creative culture really promotes great creative work i mean yes you can get great work out of people who are you know scared shitless of their job and you know feeling the pressure from the from the clients and just working themselves till they drop but you can get even better engagement and better work from people who feel invested in something that's bigger than you are. I mean, we, we named the company Buddha Jones for a reason. We, we can get into that just to be basically just to be bold and different and have it be about a thing as opposed to the three of us creative partners. Uh, and, um, and so, and so to, to get to your question, Finding ways to make that creative culture as, as vibrant as possible has been a, a huge uh, obsession with ours. And, you know, I've been sort of out of the creative work for uh, six or seven years now. And, you know, that was, that was hard. It was hard to let go because I love, I love being in the creative mix. I love helping to produce great ideas. But I learned that I really love the team building aspect of it too. And, and, 
And, you know, all those, all those challenges that I felt I faced, I, you know, was thinking about how do we, how do we make that easier? How do we make, how do we sort of friction proof the process a little bit and, and make people feel as empowered as possible and, and sort of protect them from some of the, you know, the, the ups and downs of the difficulties of, uh, you know, all the stresses that come from the outside. And I think we've done a good job of that. The individuals and their ability to be creative and to thrive in that environment, you somehow nurture that, which is true. But yeah. is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like any creative business. At the end of the day, everybody goes home and all you have is furniture. You know, it, that's the, the magic is those people. And we just have, we, we have this thing we talk about collaborative math, which is two plus two equals six, that you put people together and you don't just get the sum total of their individual talent. You get this mix that's greater than, uh, than any of it. And you guys know The, the sum is greater than its parts. Yeah. yeah, it really is. And, 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 and the more people feel like they not just matter, but they're indispensable to the final product, the more engaged and committed they are, the better the work is. Talk about some uh, some examples of your work that there are yeah. uh, listeners would, would recommend. Nope. Yeah. So that comes in the door. Tell us about the process. So Nope comes in the door. It's a it's from Universal. We've got we've had a, a great run of success with them on on horror movies and you know Halloween and various other projects, and it came in specifically for one of our editors who's now uh, a partner in the company, Bill Neal, who for my money is maybe the greatest trailer editor of all time. Uh, more than 20 years ago, he did a trailer for uh, a remake of uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't know if you saw this trailer. It's on every time there's a list of the greatest trailers of all time. It's like at the top. And it was just, it just, the, the sense of dread and, and, and rhythmic sound and that he developed with that was just absolutely stellar. And it's, it's been held up as a model ever since. And so he, he got this movie and he did what he does. And let's sort of work backwards from the final product because I saw that trailer play in a theater and people were fucking freaking out. And I think, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the Jordan Peele effect and the rest of it. But so you're sitting in a theater and for, for those of you who haven't seen the movie, I won't give anything away, but, but you're sitting in a movie uh, in a theater and this trailer starts and it's kind of, you know, upbeat and it's got this cool energy and it's Kiki Palmer doing her thing and she's incredibly charismatic and she begins to talk about, you know, this black owned cattle ranch in LA and it's all kind of cool and she's dancing around and she goes to this phonograph and she puts on a record and it's sudden, the, the tone suddenly shifts. Things start to go dark and everything slows down and and the whole the whole feel of the piece gets weighted in something unsettling and then we get to this shot that's basically a, a vista shot of the of the ranch at night with uh you know a lot of negative space which is you know just you know sky in the background 
and he's he's he bill has has built this sound design where you're hearing crickets and the crickets suddenly stop and it's completely still and you're holding on this shot and suddenly from the top of the frame comes down this massive white object you don't know what the fuck it is it looks like a ufo coming down into the frame and it's a title card <laughs> and the title card says from jordan peele and suddenly and, and it's just this beautifully simple but brilliant way to layer on an, an additional piece of information oh my god it's a jordan peele movie now i know where i'm at the process is jordan peele reaches out you guys are going to be the, the trailer uh, company for this movie he gives you the movie you all it watch it and then you look for ideas it doesn't but. quite work that way typically again it's a we're somewhat anonymous in the process i mean jordan peele certainly knows who buddha jones is but he doesn't deal with us directly the studio gives us their movie it's their movie and we can talk about relationships that filmmakers especially at the level of somebody like jordan peele or quentin you know what you know the relationship between a filmmaker and the studio i would love to hear about that because you know i'm a one-man show with my films yeah you know that well, we, so it's like i would love to learn what the real relationship should be like so 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 but the studio actually owns the ip and they give us they entrust us this movie to work on and so in the case of nope you know if if if, if jordan or any other filmmaker had a a, a special a, particular problem with you know someone like us working on it they would absolutely say so and that would be the end of it but we're working on the project and you know it's it's you know kind of finishing that thought on the on that nope trailer what that trailer does that i think every great trailer does really well is the audience is always one step behind and is trying to catch up and is hoping to catch up. And when it's done right, they never do catch up. You got to watch the movie. You got to watch the movie. Yeah. And so in this case, holy shit, it's a Jordan Peele movie. We've gone to this weird place. The music, very weird music busts out and you've got these big images and it's again it's jordan peele so you don't know what it all amounts to why is this fucking horse falling over why is this animatronic thing turning toward me why is someone getting lifted up out of the off the ground into the sky we don't know we can only assume that jordan peele has some really twisted fucked up place that he's going to take us and of course he does but we never quite get there because we're not going to let you catch up. You produce multiple versions of a trailer uh, and then send them to the studio or to him yeah. and, and they, they, you get feedback and it's a back and forth process. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if, 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 if one of our editors were sitting in this chair instead of me talking to you, they would take you through the painstaking right. process of producing a trailer in the multiple, multiple versions. I mean, you know, for, for a big trailer, for a big movie like Nope or some of the other big it. super you did it. it. Yeah. It, which by the way, had two hundred million downloads for the trailer that we produced. Oh, it, fuck. it it literally broke the internet. I don't know that that's ever been 
surpassed. It may have been, but 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 back, you know, because that's going back now five years, six. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, it was it was crazy, but but did, did it, more people see the trailer than the film? Oh, I mean, if yeah, yeah, yeah. and that always that always happens because you know it's 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 easy. It's a click to especially to watch a trailer online these days. To go see a movie, it's a process, and you have to do something. But so, I mean, what, what what's so fascinating is that there's all this interest and all this attention, but at a certain point, you know, the the process gets it, it just becomes it. There's so much at stake that it becomes a grind. There's just 30, 40 versions of a trailer. Sometimes I've wow. heard of a hundred versions before, wow. you know, it just, it can go, it can go to these crazy places because you have this gauntlet of people that have to be, that have to sign off and not even sign off way in. So you've got all kinds of studio executives and they're getting notes from their bosses and, and their collaborators and they'll give you their set of notes. And then when they've got all their notes, uh, tidied up and it all feels like it's where they want it to be. Then it kind of runs the gauntlet of filmmakers and filmmakers have a lot of thoughts as they should. And you know, it's, it's, you're, it's, it's like their baby. And what, what I love about the filmmakers is for the most part, they really do understand that what we do, it's a different kind of Art. It's it's not as hard. I mean, making a two minute film is not as hard as making a two hour <laughs> film. It just isn't, especially when you're using their footage. But what we do is unique, and I think they know that. There are there are times when they're like they pull rank, they go, "This is crazy," but they don't typically do it themselves. And so you have to run the gauntlet with them. And then there's the third phase, which is testing, and that's that's grueling because basically now you've got people on the internet, it used to be people in malls, but you have people on the internet being asked questions that, from my perspective, an audience member shouldn't even be asked. Like, it's one thing to say, this washed over you, what was what was your general feeling? Did this work? Did it, are you, would you, would you see this movie? Instead, it's like, what did you think of that scene? Mm. How did you compare that scene to that scene? What, what's, the, what's the most important moment in the movie, in the, in the trailer for you? And it's all this trying to create all this saliency around things that I think are it's very pseudoscientific from my perspective, but that's a whole gauntlet, and that's many many usually many versions. You got to work with Quentin Tarantino on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, what's your guys? How much of the inter, is their interaction with somebody like him? I mean, you're a movie fan, so you've got favorite oh, directors. Absolutely, that must have been really cool. Oh, it yeah. I mean, again, it was. Uh, this was another trailer that, uh, uh, that Bill cut and did, and it, as much as I'd like to, uh, you know, tell you the stories of hanging out with Quentin and, uh, shooting the shit and, and, uh, giving him notes on the movie, it doesn't really <laughs> work that way. He deals directly with the studio. There have been times when we've dealt with big, big directors and, and, and filmmakers and, 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 uh, other talent. Uh, it's, it's not wise of us to talk too much about those stories is cause, uh, you know, there's never a, a real upside to it. But in the case of Quentin, I can say this, he, we only got 
12 minutes of footage. And it's a pretty great statement of Bill and our team that we were able to replicate the magic of that movie with 12 minutes. I mean, it was so, because I saw a lot of different pieces and they had some, you know, they tried, you know, they got some perspectives from other places. But what our team was able to do, I just think so fully inhabited the vibe and feel of that movie. I was so, it was great because I was so pleased with the trailer. Uh, it got such great response. Quentin was effusive to the studio, which was then effusive to us. But then I saw the movie and I was like, oh, I'm so fucking proud that we were able to encapsulate all that was great about that. And not, it wasn't like a condensed version of the trick of the movie. It was its own piece, but it just, it, it found the flavor. You took your whole staff to the theater that is in the movie, right? To watch yeah. the movie. So, so yeah. So the movie comes out and this was obviously pre-pandemic 2018, I guess and uh 2019 i can't remember and everybody was so jacked up to see this movie obviously once upon a time in hollywood, hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and and so we took the entire entire company to the cinema dome uh, uh which was just down the street from buddha jones to see the movie and it was just an absolute thrill and it's in the movie you know the theater's yeah. in the movie yeah the theater's in the movie he drives by but but did i get it right so you we're not able to see the whole movie. You were only able to see 12 minutes. You didn't get to watch the movie, then get 12 minutes to edit with. You were only able to see 12 minutes. Okay, so we got to read a script. So we knew what the movie was. And then we got, here you go, 12 minutes of footage. And, you know, and Quentin's a genius. So he's like, it's not like 12 random minutes. It was 12 minutes. And it wasn't just... The 12 highlights, you saw that movie, there's, there's more, it's like, he just, he's a, he's a storyteller. He could, he could, he could see how it would put, would work together. But again, even with 12 minutes of footage, there's a million ways you could cut that thing. Right. And all but a couple are probably not good. But, and, and again, in this case, you had the music. So we've got Neil Diamond music. We've got you know this incredible pop '60s music. It was all there, but it's one thing to do a good or serviceable version of his movie. It's another thing to do something that really, that really can make make us proud that it, it represented that movie at the highest level. So, I really want context to this conversation. I really want to get to the crux of this, John. <laughs> I want to hear George Knapp's lies about how you guys are friends. So tell me this, how did you, what was the first time you met John? And, and just describe that to me. I was a coach, the debate coach at UC Berkeley. I'd been a college debater and, and had some level of success, I guess. And oh, wow. I got invited to teach at a debate institute at Loyola Marymount. Loyola is a great school. They have a great debate tradition. Uh, I had competed against them. I judged them in tournaments. Uh, they had some really terrific guys. We're going to talk about one of them, Ed Deason and Ernie Martz and oh, yeah. uh, some other guys who are really good debaters. And they invite me to go down and spend like a month, a good chunk of the summer, teaching high school kids about debate. How old were you at this time? 
24 maybe but so when you say you're pretty good at debate what he's saying is that like he was part of like a he was good and no, he was he was he was outstanding he was a, a premier level debater and, and, sure. and that is something that you were also doing or is that yeah well not at that level i mean i had in the past and, and at that point i had sort of my my debate career had sort of petered out and i was doing other things but i was there i knew the team uh he was sort of in the thick of it i was sort of on the on the fringe but you know and we can get into the whole story of how two guys in the early 20s should be you know somehow representing uh mentoring the next generation of talent that's a whole other sort of yeah thing. i want i want to ask about that but i want to wrap my head around it because so i know you from your journalism and i, I just i always knew it was different the way that you took at stories was different but like what's george's background and that that for me i learned that really through you he, he doesn't really wouldn't really talk to me that much about that past but it's become apparent that george from his i don't know if you want to go early history but you worked your way up all the way to the point of being well surprising in a way that there are more debaters who become journalists because it's a it's a great training for gathering and consuming and in you know sort of ingesting a lot of information and then being able to spit it back out or yeah. condense it get it get your head around things uh, but there aren't many there are, it's surprising but so you're in school and you start like you go to a debate class and then you start excelling at like winning debates like wrestling matches and then you get promoted or they have tournaments so you know uh most colleges and universities have some form of a forensic team some of its debate some of it is other independent uh, individual events public speaking events but debate is like a sport and at some level it's like college football it's one-on-one -on -one. it's two two on two usually okay. two on two i don't know what it is now but it's a a team from say university of the pacific versus loyola marymount and you go in and you have a a national topic and and the affirmative team defends the the national resolution and the other guys on the other side have to oppose it and there's a judge or a panel of judges and you compete and they rate the speakers and then it's a sudden elimination tournament so you have eight preliminary rounds then you're into the quarterfinals semifinals and the, the the winner of a tournament so the way the way i'll understand it is like so it's like for me like a jujitsu tournament if you beat one person you get to go up and maybe yeah. wrestle the next yeah. so really i want to take my time with this to understand you better this is like a secret mission for me right now <laughs> so so basically you're a young george knapp this is before you're you know the journalist george knapp even before you're the cab the worst cab driver in las vegas george right. knapp yeah. So you're now worked your way up these these grappling messages of intellect, of public speaking, of debate, and and then you get offered a job to teach the youth out in California by the coast at Loyola Marymount, this beautiful campus with this big grass knoll that goes that that's the one, right? Loyola Marymount. Yep. Okay, so there you are, and you're you've got this new job, and you're going to kind of uh, shepherd in the youth and teach them. What's the first moment you meet this guy? That's a good question. I'm not sure, but we were introduced, I think, by Ed Deason, yep. Yep. who's now a, a top attorney here in in, uh, in L.A. Who's Ed Deason? So yeah, so Ed is he was he's a he was a friend of mine from high school, and we were in debate together in high school, and we went uh, went to a, a all boys Catholic school out in Laverne called Damien High School, and we had this uh, tremendous uh, debate program and we uh we had we had 
several great teams and Ed had, was part of one team, I was part of another team. We had, ended up meeting each other in the finals of the, you know, this district tournament, uh, all of LA. And, and then we went on to the semifinals state and they went on to the national tournament. So we had a really celebrated sort of high school experience. And then we all went to, Lo several of us went to Loyola and Ed stayed with it and ed was great he was on a different level than i was and he was he was phenomenal and he he stayed with it and 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 he and george mixed it up and uh went head to head i'm sure on many occasions i i was judging ed by that point i was uh, at university of pacific i was the the director of forensics there so i'd go to tournaments and and judge debates that's i think i'm not sure if i ever competed against ed he would have kicked my ass because he was really good he was right uh, um and so I got to know them from judging them. They were, they were a lot of fun. They were smart. They were really clever. It was always entertaining and educational to judge one of their debates. And we became kind of friends on the circuit. And then their coach, Bussy, Bussy, yeah, had invited me to come down for their tournament. Figured I'd be a good mix with the Loyola debaters, where the other instructors for this summer institute, uh, a summer in at Loyola in L.A. That sounds pretty good. Um, so it came down and and they put all these young, impressionable minds in our hands, uh, probably have warped an entire generation there, uh, but we we hit it off. We became friends immediately. Right, so you, you enjoy it. Go ahead. Well, let me take the story in a slightly different direction. <laughs> because I think, yes. I think I have a way of sort of creating a foundational view of <laughs> the magic of yeah. George Knapp. Oh, please. Okay, so it, that, so it was that same summer. I think it's all defined by Stockton, California. <laughs> Tell me how. Have, have you been to Stockton? I've been to Stockton, but not on a tour with George now. Okay, so uh, Stockton is George's hometown. I've been to Stockton once, and uh, it's kind of a dusty cow town, <laughs> to be honest with you. And it's, you know, somewhere in the, you know, the periphery of, the, of Sacramento, and that same summer, 77, uh, I was traveling up to Washington State with a friend of mine. Which is the year I was born, which makes this even funnier for me to <laughs> so, go on. Oh, right. yeah, no, totally. Well, well so, so we decided we're going to go through Stockton, spend a night, hang out with George, drink a few beers, and we pull into town, and the next thing we know, a wheel bearing goes out on the, the wheel of this piece of shit car that we're driving and it's Stockton. So, you know, fixing a wheel, but, uh, you know, that's going to take a week. <laughs> so instead of a night, I spend a week <laughs> with George Knapp and, you know, sleeping on a sofa. And here's what I learned in that week. Tell me, John. First of all, so what do you do? You spend a lot of time at one of the cowboy bars. And in that week, George drank me into the table. Oh, you George's don't. mom drank me into the table. George's sister, his brother, all of his friends, and all of the townspeople drank my ass under the table. You must have been a total amateur. And, and, uh, well, I mean, I thought I, I thought I had some skills, and uh, but the point is, we would it, we, so we would drink hard. I'd go back, I'd be in a puddle in the, you know, in the sofa that I was sleeping on. I'd hear, you know, I'd fall asleep, I'd hear noises in the morning, and it was 
people getting up to go do shit. That's like, yeah. go to their jobs, you know, report to the office, take care of business. And they all did. And that's when I started to see how it all came together. And again, we didn't know each other that well at that point. Yeah. But it was proven over the decades that that was the thing. You play hard and you work hard and you ne this guy never once missed a day of work. I, I'm, Ever I'm, once. I mean, he might do everything at last fucking minute, but he always passes that finish line in spectacular fashion. And so I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but oh, so the character no, of I mean, George before he was the journalist. There's a reason why yeah, he, he got he, to where he got. He goes after shit, right? And he doesn't put it down. Not the next day, not the next week, no, not the next month. For 35, 40 fucking years, he's been going after a story. He'll keep going after it and he'll wake up every morning and he'll go into it. He doesn't drop a syllable. It's breathtaking. Let me, so let me, okay, so let me now move into the early 80s when I'd go out to visit and, you know, with, I had to bring a, a new person every time because I basically fry them out and, the, you know, after two days of being in, Vegas with George, it's it's pretty intense. <laughs> there were a couple of trips that John made to Las Vegas with friends that were momentous, what I can remember of them. <laughs> it might have been slightly exaggerated, my 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 stamina, but um, some of that's relatively true. Man, you guys have had some adventures, so that's become clear if I've included them in this episode or not. I just heard an earful. Uh, but really, I the, the, my selfish reason for being like, man john long coming on is cool is because you you just known george for a long time and you've known him at, at, in different phases of his life mm. probably highs and lows and when you really get to trust people and sometimes admire them for, for what they've done it's not because of one thing they've done it's not because of two things they've done it's because there's a consistency and a pattern with the way they live their life and out of all the fun stories and everything that you've thrown at us and, and kind of how you know George, what is it that makes George different in his skill, in his art form? What is disruptive about what he does? Like in your, you want to be different with your work. Mm -hmm. What is it about George that you think either is the origin of why he's, he's um, so dogged about his reporting or, or give us insight into where that comes from or how you've seen consistency over George over the years. Does that make sense? Totally. Okay. Well, I want to start with the fact that he was a natural born, brilliant storyteller. I knew that like the first week I met him, we would, we would shoot the shit. We'd talk about things and the way he would reconstruct a bunch of seemingly disparate details in, with, with, with a sense of cohesion and clarity and, enter, and an entertaining value was, was really unique from the very beginning. And so when he said to me that he wanted to go into journalism, because as we had talked about, most of the people we knew from debate, they were, it was like the, the super highway to the legal field or politics, uh, that sort of thing, you know, where you would use those verbal skills to basically, you know, manipulate uh, the system or, you know, somehow, uh, you know, exploit some, someone in need uh, and to give back to the community. But, but George wanted to be a storyteller and he wanted to be a journalist. And at first when he said, I'm going to Vegas, I'm like, fuck. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, man. Just go to L.A. Go to a big market. You're gonna be, you're you're gonna be famous. You're gonna you're gonna make it. But I think it was clear to him that what he really cared about was the quality of the story. And what better place to find crazy, unexpected, colorful stories than Vegas? And he got there, and I, m I remember thinking, you know. This guy is going to do whatever it takes. He's going to drive a cab. He's going to carry cement. He's going to. I remember when he worked at the PBS station. Was I think the first yeah. gig he had, and you could tell. I mean, it's just he just had it, and he was hilarious. And and you know they would they would make up all these games, and we'd walk. You know, we'd go around town, and you could just feel. And 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 the more I spent time with him in Vegas, you started to see the connection he had with the audience because you'd see him on the street with people and he was so approachable and people it was like people he, you could tell that people felt he represented their interest because he was always trying to do something i mean in a town where it could have been all about the sleaze right and everything's kind of facade of things yeah and everything is artificial yeah he would try to actually find the real story that had some kind of social significance as well as personal significance. And he always made it personal. And the other part of it is his writing. It was just extraordinary. What is it that motivates George now? Uh, uh, fucking passion to get, to get the answers. Like, it was funny, and he and I were talking about this in, in the begin, uh, before the before we started the show. It was like when you know all through the '80s when I would visit him, I would get updates on what he was doing in the early '90s. But it wasn't like it is today, where you could just drop a link and show people what you're doing. So it was always kind of from a distance. I was sort of half paying attention to stuff he was doing, and. You know, there's a little bit of oh, he's okay. He's he's really into the UFO thing. Okay, and all right, well, and and for me, it was like oh, maybe he's going with the you know the superficial, uh, you know, catchiness of it, and, and and is trying to sort of ride that wave. But no, what it turned out was, and what we talked about later, is that he was driven to get answers because the people he was talking to in in levels of power. We're not telling the truth. The story didn't line up, and that, and I just don't think he had let it go. He doesn't like liars. Uh, yeah, and I think, and he doesn't. He, I think he's driven to express the truth about something, and and this just happened to be what could potentially be but, a massive truth. But why? Well, why is you'll George... have to ask him or his therapist. Oh, but okay. uh, back, I, I, back I, in I... those days, we'd write letters, actually write yeah. letters. And it was, uh, you have to be in a competition with John because he's such a funny guy and such a great writer. And it would be, you know, I'd have to really think about what I'm going to write back because these guys would read it in a group, I think. and uh, Out loud. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Somewhere yeah. those letters, I, uh, there's got to be some letter floating yeah. around somewhere. But they, the back and forth was just hilarious and, and, I felt this, and i felt the same way toward him of course you never i'd never admit it but just he was just he was daunting his talent was so obvious and his uh his as you said his communication ability was is, yeah. is just kind of off the charts i, I know this may, this makes george super uncomfortable you know just having yes private conversation but 
why I think it's truly important is because I have learned, so I wouldn't put so much effort in to following in, in, in the footsteps, but also trying to, to do things with George, to break news, if I didn't trust that George was 100% after the right thing. Mm -hmm. And people like from the outside, they always try to look at, because look, George is disruptive within his field. New York Times, 60 Minutes, BBC, you name the network, you name, put your name there. He outpaces, outmaneuvers, and outperforms all of them. And this is a single guy out in the middle of the desert, one dude that does that. So I see the slings and arrows he gets. So I wanted to hear from a friend of his, where does that come from? Because he's actually fucking doing it. He's breaking the sound barriers each time that we didn't know. We thought the world would crumble if, if that story got out. It didn't crumble. So I'm just reporting the news here myself, which is that I wanted to understand kind of like what mode, and I can ask George and he'll give me like the answer that I need to hear, but from a friend and you guys know each other so long where there's consistency in action and you can tell better than anybody like where that comes from. If I had to answer, I would say, I think George does not like deception. He is honest to a fault. He puts me in a position where he checks my ass all the time. So I don't know. It's like you got something, a bug against that. And it's great. I just... I want to get into John Long's origin story. I know. We're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, well, hold on a second. Because I think you're onto something. And I kind of go back to what I was saying, which is he's just, he's driven. I, I still think Stockton plays a role in this story. When it's you poverty. grow up a certain way, yeah. Is, that, is that what it is? What, how, do, how does and, Stockton... And, well, I mean, because I have the same... You know, it's the same but different story. I grew up in Pomona, and it was like, you know, lower middle class family. And and I always felt compelled on some level to do something, make something of my time. To prove yourself. Yeah, and I, I, I felt like that was, you know, I felt I feel like, you know, there's a, you know, there's a part of Stockton that's in him, and I think that's good for us to be, you know, not complacent and 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 not okay with just so it. is it fair to say that i mean when people feel like george speaks for the people it's kind of what you're saying like on the street mm. that he has a voice for people is it fair to say that's because he actually does it's it's that marriage of i'm going to get deep into this and i'm going to find out what you don't know or you and try to get the answers that i think you want and I'm going to speak to you like a, you know, with, with respect. I think he's always been really respectful of the audience. Yeah. And never dumbed anything down. That's right. And never, and, and because, you know, a lot of these are very complicated issues with a lot of, Well, that, you know, that's pieces. the thing. He, he, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll kick ass when it's a story about UFOs and not put it down, but he'll do the same for water rights, animal rights, yeah. corruption, anything to do with politics or people taking bribes, doing stuff wrong. So, you know, mob stuff even. I mean, I know that there has been, you know, attempts at George to harm him and his family. So, okay, I just wanted to kind of get a, a picture on record here of yeah. what I see and try to understand it. So thank you for that. Yeah, and my last thought, I mean, you know, he was he, he was a pretty face back in the day, and he <laughs> absolutely could have made that migration from that small market to a bigger market. Uh, he might have had to clean up certain aspects of his life or whatever, but but he absolutely could have made that move. 
but I think it was more compelling to him to do the stories that he cared about. And that's, that's a journalist. These, you know, these talking heads, the pretty talking heads may have been journalists at one time, but they're not. They're not now. So, so, so George Knapp, the underdog, but if it was George Knapp, the reservoir dog, which one would he be? <laughs> See, you're a movie guy. Which reservoir dog is George Knapp? Well, I think he's both, but but no, no, you're the movie man. Hit me. He, which the, character? Oh, which character? Uh, yeah, so in reservoir, if he's, he's the probably underdog, Mr. Pink. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, he's he he's he's definitely not the guy who's going to get his earlobe chopped off. <laughs> he's he, he's just the he's the fucking guy that's going to be there at the end and say, "All right, what's next?" So we've heard enough dirt on me. I want to get into some dirt on John, not really dirt, but his origin story. If this were a Marvel movie, and you've worked on some Marvel movies. Indeed. And we'll get into some of those. Uh, the humble origins of our hero is uh, John and I are friends. We go back and forth. I'm in Las Vegas. He's in LA. We have uh, our friendship maintains over a, a large number of years. And but we both of us wasn't really clear where we were going in our lives. I mean, I had a, a path, but I didn't know where, where it was going to end up. And there are different relationships and job changes and things like that. And I'm worried about my friend John because he's a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant writer. He was so goddamn funny, uh, uh, like a stiletto. He could just cut somebody's uh, body parts off with one line. And I always thought maybe he'd be great in stand-up comedy. And I thought maybe that or writing a comedy show or something like that. But I think for a while he was training. He was like a, doing training with um, celebrities, stars. Right. Mm -hmm. I figured, all right, this is what's going to happen. He's going to end up marrying uh, Anne Margaret and become a kept man. Something like that. <laughs> you were doing that for a while, though. Right. You uh, some yeah, I never quite got that far. So, yeah, I mean, the 80s were, you know, a, sort of a bit of an up and down period for me. I mean, I was. Uh, as I was t telling you, I was, I had sort of two jobs at the time. I was working as a personal trainer, like one of the first sort of personal trainers. I had met somebody who, uh, through, through this writing partner that I had, who had done a profile of this, uh, personal trainer in LA. And, uh, he did this profile for the LA times. And I met with this guy and I was like, Look, I'm a writer. I spend my days writing, but I'm a super fit person. Let's let's talk because I could probably take on a few of your clients. So <laughs> I ended up having this bizarre dual career in the 80s where in the mornings and the evenings I was at a gym training people. And during the middle of the day, I was working on all kinds of different projects with this writing partner that I had. And we had some success enough to keep us in the game. We'd get some uh, we'd have a, a project in development here, a project in development screenplays. there. Screenplays. Yeah, Screenplay. screenplays, primarily, and some TV shows and some, uh, you know, comedy, uh, sitcom kind of stuff. And never quite getting the level of, uh, of uh, success that we wanted. And it became pretty grueling. And I was, as I was telling you, I was living in this kind of hovel in West Hollywood or in West Los Angeles. I was living in this... Uh, uh, sort of single unit on the second floor above this uh, Argentinian family. And Juan and Juancito would uh, 
cook uh, Argentinian, Argentinian beef every night. And this big column of smoke would come up and fill my single apartment every evening with smoke. And that was sort of my life. And, and finally, I had, a, I had a client that I was training with who had some connection to people in the studio business and marketing. And I met with them and I showed them stuff that I had done and they showed me stuff that they had done and they were like, oh no, you could do this. And so they gave me a, you know, a kind of a short tutorial training program, had me do some stuff and they said, no, you're ready. And they introduced me to different people in the business, agency owners of, of companies like Buddha Jones, but you know, this was 1990 or something like that. And, uh, I went to work for this company and this guy was like, you're good. Uh, here's a movie I want you to help us with. It's called Home Alone. <laughs> and uh, that was my introduction to the, uh, and I worked on Home Alone with them and I worked on, uh, you know, uh, Terminator 2 and Basic Instinct, all these movies in the early 90s. And what were you doing? I was doing primarily uh, copywriting because in those days, trailers were sort of wall to wall, you know, voiceover to help shape the story. But because I had a pretty good visual sense and had a fair amount of, because uh, I'd done some work in some documentaries and things like that, I was in the editing room pretty quickly. And so working on actually producing pieces pretty quickly. Uh, but yeah, I started as a, a copywriter and somebody was helping to kind of shape the the ideas. Those are pretty good movies to start off with. Home Alone and, and Terminator 2. It was crazy. <laughs> it was nuts. And I'm like, Jesus, I like this business. And and I worked for that company for 10 years, actually more like 12 years. And then uh, I got to a place where some colleagues and I decided, you know what, we can do this. And uh, went and started Buddha Jones with no more than you know, a very short roster of clients that uh, we worked with and, you know, this belief that we could do things that were different and it, it worked out. Boy, it's like jumping out of the plane without a parachute at that point. All right, go for it. And it's funny because I say that to people all the time uh, who are up and coming. I'm like, if I can give you one piece of professional advice, it's believe in yourself and jump out of the plane because you will survive. And when you plummet to the ground, don't blame me. Buddha Jones is now a giant. I mean, it's a, a, not a huge company, but a giant in the industry in terms of its respect. I saw the, you have the golden, the golden trailers, right? Is that what the golden called? trailers, which is kind of the, you know, the Oscar. Oscars and, or, or maybe it's the people's choice awards. Cause there's also the Clio's, which is, you know, they give out awards. So there's kind of competing award shows, but you know, we're prominent in all of them. You got 23 golden trailers last year alone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, there's there, uh, it, it really is important to say that there are a lot of great companies doing great work in this industry. Uh, we, I, I think it, I'm proud to say that we are in the, on the short list of companies that are thought of as really being uh, preeminent in the business. And it's but, fun, isn't it? It's oh, fun. There's, it's just like, that's the other thing I tell people is find something that you get up every day and say, I can't wait to get to work and mix it up with people that I care about. Yeah. I mean, look, man, 
it's uh it's not bragging if you're confessing so <laughs> it's just like both of you it's so hard like i got no problem saying what i've done and what i'm proud of because i feel like it will either inspire people to to rise to that level of of what they're trying to do i know my shortcomings i try to learn them every day but i got no problem with with confessing when i've done something good because i think it's like if you shadow yourself and you're like oh no 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 it's it's no big deal it, then what that does, it's a disservice to everybody. Like, no, you got to be fucking proud of your work. If you're not proud of it, you did something wrong. It's true. I mean, there is an axiom in writing that's basically don't say it, show it. And so there is that, like, yeah. show me. But once you show it, fucking say it. Because that makes people, I love it. that makes people, oh. it, look, that has made me rise to the occasion. When people are, are bragging to me, but they're telling the truth, I, I'm like, okay then I'm gonna try that. So I've got no problem. I think people should say more what it is that's on their mind that they have achieved. And if people feel uncomfortable about that, well, guess what? They need to fucking catch up. And so <laughs> about that, there have been three, which would have been nothing movies if it weren't for you. And I'm, I'm gonna be honest with you about that. And I'll tell you why. But um, I made, so, so our audience can see, okay, this is Patient 17. Okay, this is a movie. And this was my first movie, unknown filmmaker, Netflix picked it up, okay? I didn't know you yet though, right? I was like, oh no, I had a shitty ass trailer, but then I went in and jumped in and tried to make it better, but I'm not like what you do. Do you recognize this second movie for the audience, Skinwalker Ranch, Hunt for the Skinwalker? I do indeed. Okay, that was the second movie, that is what, uh, I was able to make because of 50% of the footage is what George was filming for all that, that maybe a decade, right? But I ha it was a complex movie because you're talking about uh, vintage archive footage. You're talking about stuff that was filmed on camcorders on the ground, dealing with a, a government program. And then I'm trying to film stuff that is like cinematically beautiful. Man, I could not take that two hour movie and 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 be like, this is what it's about. It's not what it's all about. I want you to always be behind, as you said, like somebody looking at it. You did the trailer because you're friends with George for this movie, Hunt for the Skinwalker. Um, this movie, I was like, I, I remember thinking, oh, fuck, John made a trailer and it's better than the movie. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm like trying to figure out what that means, right? Look, for people that have the patience, to watch the movie, you gotta get them to go see it. So I wanna thank you because I don't think you know, so many people are allergic like me to things that are highly strange. But I'm curious about it and I wanna find out the truth about it. But I, I do have an, this allergy mm -hmm. to things that are highly strange. I feel like I'm nuts and bolts, like I'm a straight guy when it comes to this thought process. You made a great trailer, I wanna multiple trailers and i don't want to thank you for that but and did us a solid too i mean it's like we're not exactly in a league that could qualify to get a buddha jones trailer yeah, yeah but but it was it was just a great process working with you guys and I, I remember very vividly that first phone call we had because we were talking and you guys had a trailer and you were saying, yeah, I don't know if we, if it's great. And, you know, we're working with this company Orchard and, you know, they've got a lot of ideas. And I said, well, let me, let me see the movie and I'll tell you what I think. And I saw the movie and I 
and I immediately thought, wow, this movie, this trailer that they have doesn't represent what I think is powerful about this movie. It was a fine trailer, but it felt like a documentary about a documentary instead of a piece that would somehow embrace the, the real mystery of why the fuck are these stories happening and what's the real, why aren't these questions being answered? And so when we went back and forth, I think you probably remember I got pretty excitable about, oh my God, no, we got to do something that's way bolder than this. And, 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 and it was just fabulous that you, that you, uh, that we were able to work together and that, that you guys were so, uh, uh, supportive of some of these ideas. And I, I was thinking about it too, because like, I remember watching the movie and thinking, this is a documentary, but I want to capture what's magical about it, which is this, this, this question of why are we not being told information about these incredible weird things that are happening and, and what the fuck is going on? And so I wanted to do the, what the fuck is going on trailer. And that's what, that's what Robbie Williams has said is, you know, he goes, I don't know what this is. He goes, but something's up. And I love that. That's because, great. That, that's how I'm coming from it. I, I don't actually remember that phone call. There was a moment I do remember with you. It, it was, it was for the next one, but I don't remember that, that phone call, but it was just um, so cool. Cause we're not, we're not in your league. Or I'm not in your league as a filmmaker. You know, let's be clear. Uh, I made this film. If there's something wrong with it, it's on me. Okay, Matt Adams edited a lot of the, or all of the, um, you know, what we call archive footage, but, you know, I'll take full responsibility if something's not good with the movie. It was a hard lift for me as being somebody who's not like a real filmmaker, like the people you normally work with, who work with studios and shit like of that. Course. But you know, I couldn't make this film without all of George's guidance and evidence. That's why you're a producer on each film. It's not a monetary sig signal. It's a, it's because it could not have happened without, without George you know, allowing me, bringing me to Skinwalker, and then, you know, kind of nurturing this story that right. is so important. The fact you trusted me with this story, you know, I hope I did a good job, but when you got to this trailer, which by the way, we can show people because, because, because mine, I can show, <laughs> so I can actually show something John made. So let's play that here. It was dead night that out of nowhere, that weird flash. Can you see that? Look at that. That's amazing. That's not possible. That is not possible. There is some kind of intelligence operating here. And you're not allowed to talk about it. This is like the Area 51 of the paranormal. So many things have happened on the properties that have not been made public. Going public now. It is perhaps the most important scientific effort of our time. The Pentagon and CIA, they've been investigating encounters with the paranormal at the ranch. We're talking about unidentified flying objects, UFOs. The program received more than $20 million for its work. This is a potential threat, a grave one to our country. And everybody who lives there knows about it. Something is here. Something that the government's doing. Right above my head, and I could hit it with a tennis ball. The Skinwalker is extraterrestrial. 
They should not have vanished, but they vanished. We are on the eve of something momentous. Will any of the fingers be pointing toward Skinwalker the Ranch? Declassified videos and authentic Department of Defense footage published in December. Oh my gosh. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. After you saw that, I mean, it's like, I, I was really worried the trailer was better than the film, but you did capture in that, the, the quest to at least watch the film. Yeah. And that's, I really appreciate that. Now, what I do remember, and this is kind of the, for me, a defining moment, this was so dear to my heart. And I was like, didn't want to let anybody down, but I wanted to have my honest and direct signature, my voice, my every single millisecond in this every sound edit everything you know i made sure was to the best of my ability and that's the bob lazar film Absolutely. right so now you've seen that so now tell me about that because again your damn trailer i thought was gonna be better than the movie because you're friends with george you know that he broke this story that this has impact and this impact is larger if if it's true this impact is larger than than just a movie you get this documentary, I'm like, John, can you do us a solid, you know, this mm -hmm. is like, now you're talking to me. Now you're like at picking up the phone for me. Can, what can we do? Now, to be clear, I'm pretty sure we paid you, but nothing I'm sure compared to what people pay you. <laughs> so, so you did me a solid, you did the UFO community a solid because just hundreds of millions of people have seen this film now. More than that, have seen the trailer and I did a pretty okay trailer on this one, but yours was excellent. So can do you remember kind of about that film anything? Oh, I remember uh, many things about it. And first of all, I thought it was a really important movie. And, you know, we sat around, I remember us having a, in, at Buddha Jones, we had a creative meeting around, what is it we want to try to do with this thing? And it came back to that same question of, here's this person really bigger than life kind of character. I mean, Lazar is really an interesting person. And how can he stake so much? How can he put himself in such sort of physical and psychological peril to tell a story? What is motivating him? And why is this story so suppressed? And we were trying to get to that human thing. Not, again, not to make a documentary about a documentary, but to do something visceral that you felt and but you put you had a lot of the elements there you had that incredible mickey rourke voiceover which was i mean like that's gold okay i love mickey rourke every people hate that they like he always oh, mumbling with rocks in his mouth it, it was the, it was great it was amazing right it was great and he said he goes i don't know what all this means jeremy but it sounds pretty deep I like it. I was like, yeah, man. <laughs> no. And so it was amazing. As soon as I heard that, I said, oh, there's the spine of the, you know, first half of the movie, at least of, of the trailer, at least. So you did a lot of the heavy lifting. We were just trying to do what I think we're paid to do and what we're experts at doing is how do we distill this down to this, its most essential experience that's going to move people? This is not information. This is not a documentary course. This is not a newscast. This is not informational. 
Trailers are meant to create an ex visceral experience. And so what is it about this particular piece of work that, that we think has the most powerful resonance? And, and so that's how we went at it and all the pieces were there. And I don't think the trailer is better than the movie, but again, uh, what we do in two minutes is easier than what you do in an hour and a half. But oh no, nine years. But go yeah, on. nine years exactly. Well, hold on. Let's let's play people that trailer. I want to see more people to see what John yeah. did with the movie. They haven't seen the movie. Watch the trailer. Here we go. Play. This story is extraordinary, especially if it's true. And it all started in the desert, just north of Las Vegas. A local scientist who worked at Groom Lake said to be where top secret weapon systems have been tested over the years. He has asked that his identity be shielded. Exactly what's going on up there. What's going on up there could be the most important event in history. Physical contact and proof of, from another, another system, another planet, another intelligence. What would happen to you if the government learned that you were giving us this information? He just wanted to stay alive. Maybe this has been kept from us for a good reason. Sir, how do we know you are, who you say you are? My name's Bob Lazar. I'm known for working at a classified base and reverse engineered alien spacecraft. It went all over the world. He put Area 51 on the map. Can we ever be made whole if we're not believed? can't verify what was going on in his background. I have no motivation to lie. The science and the technology can change us. We've always looked to the skies for answers instead of looking into ourselves. Well, th thank you, first of all, for, for you know, making these trailers for these films. They really did allow people to access them and to want to access them. That was the, my thing my friends said, is like, yeah. the trailer's got to make people want to watch the movie. If you really believe in your movie, that it's honest, it's genuine, it's it's important for people to see, trailer needs to make people watch them. Now, I know you did it because you're long-time friends, you know, with George, but I, but I also know that you said to me, you know, you gave me a good... of you gave me good material to work with. That's you being bashful, but I, but I, but I do get that. Um, do you do a lot of documentaries or is it mainly? Yeah, we do. We do uh, a lot of documentaries. Uh, we, uh, we, we just did one recently for Bill Russell yeah. for Netflix. And uh, I was really proud of that piece because it was able to showcase not only the sports icon, but this social, the, the, you know, the social movement that he represented and that he supported and that he was a big part of. And I think it was one, I mean, for someone like me who actually knows the story, I'm old enough to remember uh, Bill Russell uh, in his playing years and, and, and afterwards. Uh, but for so many of the young people in our company, they didn't even know who he was. I don't and, know who Bill Russell yeah, is. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. Celtics, you, you, Boston Celtics. But but the point I'm trying to make is that that documentary made it made the story so relevant to so many people, and you know we've done several documentaries in the you know uh, 
centered around race, race relations and, 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 you know, where we are as a society and, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we have a long history of working on those. But it's the same process when you make a documentary trailer as you do with a movie. Your attempt is to engage people on a emotional, subliminal, deep level. Yeah. That's what you're trying to do is, That's right. is hook them into learning whatever it is they're going to learn inside of the film. That's that, right. For those of us not in the biz, in your biz, um, identifying the elements that have to go into making a great trailer is hard, but you certainly can recognize me as a movie consumer and uh, can recognize a bad trailer. And that's those are the ones that tell you the whole damn movie. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of trailers I see that, well, don't need to see that one. You know, you can fill in the gaps of what's going to happen in that film. Horror films, for example. Um, so you get to see a lot of trailers in your biz. You can identify which ones are good and which ones are bad. What's the difference? Well, uh, okay, so let's 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 settle back and kind of look at it. Let's start with what I think are the elements that make a great trailer, and then we can talk about the elements that make a, a less than great trailer. The first the first thing about a trailer, as I've said, it's a piece of entertainment that's meant to evoke some kind of emotion in people. It's not informational. It's not. Uh, it's not background. It's not documentary. It's meant to evoke a feeling, and the way it works with the great teams that put these things together is this beautiful marriage of style and story. There has to be a story. There has to be something, some compelling reason to want to know more about this material. It can't just be the greatest music video you've ever seen. We have great talent, you know, writers and music people and, 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 uh, and editors. We could make music videos all day and we've actually done some in the past, but, but that's kind of an empty experience. This has got to be some story that you thread through that compels people to, to see more. But, so it can't just be style or that's a mu music video and it can't just be story or that's a news clip it's got to be some marriage of the two and the and the good ones do that better than anybody and the the second thing is is the is the journey they take you on uh all the so many up-and-comers that i see are out to sort of dazzle you and show you how much they can do and a lot of visual pyrotechnics and musical leaps of a fancy and all the rest of it. And mostly what I end up telling them is take out 50% and be confident with the stuff that you leave in. You want to take people on a, on a journey and that journey has got to have highs and it's got to have lows. If it's all at 11, it's not going to be compelling. And so, it has to be compelling and part of the way you do that is is to create this this emotional ride and the great ones suck you in in the beginning you absolutely are going to be out of a trailer in 10 seconds in fact these days what what we have is what well, what they call a bumper which is literally four or five seconds six seconds of visual images that say, now watch the trailer. It's like, and that's the, that's the music video portion of it.
So, you know, especially because everything's consumed online these days, everybody, you, you literally don't have the luxury of time the way you did when you sucked people into theaters and they were a captive audience. They were sitting there and they had got to sit through all the trailers. But online, they don't have to. And so we've had to speed up that process of hooking people. So you have to find a way to hook someone, set up the idea. But again, it can't be so complicated that they're thrown off in the beginning. And then you want to build, stay one step ahead, as I said, at all times. And have people feel like they're catching up, but never quite catch up. And then you crescendo out and maybe you end with some quiet moment and it feels like a whole piece but you feel like you didn't have the whole meal and you want to consume the rest of it and that's what the great ones do you did the, the trailers for jeremy's two movies and suddenly people in the ufo world are are beating a path to your door at least some of them yeah did. and um i remember you calling me and you're you had talked to your staff because they're going through uh bits and pieces of these other films and we're in them and your staff is oh. gone. Are you guys in every UFO movie in the world? But so did you, did you see that as maybe a niche? Uh, well, well, first uh, of all, it started with, there were people who knew who George Knapp was and they're like, wait a minute, George Knapp is in this fucking movie. <laughs> That's where it started. So there was already a certain level of, of interest and, and excitement. And it was, it was, it was, it felt like that moment the aha moment that I had when I understood why you were so driven. And that was you wanted to answer why people, why people in authority, why the official story was so unreliable. And so uh, our, our team members, as they started to get into this stuff, and I never really thought that much about UFOs. I always thought it was kind of a bunch of cranks sitting around talking about whatever. But wait, what, how, do you, how do you explain this? And so it's just, it naturally, it's got its own kind of uh, centrifugal force. It just pulls you in. And so, yes, it's a niche and I think we can be good at it, but I think we're good at it because we're good at, art form of telling trailer stories. Uh, and this just happens to be a particularly interesting subgenre. You know, not, not all documentaries are uh, uh, really fascinating. I mean, there's, there's um, obviously some are better than others, but, uh, but this is, I think it's a world that just uh, sort of is inherently interesting to people. But, but th this is a world that has now been kind of knocking on your door. I know for sure, because I always tell people, I don't know if you can afford them, because I sure can't, but you should go to Buddha Jones. And I'm sorry for that. I never take <laughs> I responsibility for introductions. <laughs> but now the, the UFO world is kind of going to one of the top trailer making companies in the world. They're like, can you help us? We're making a documentary. This yeah. is not like a big budget film, but you have, yeah. and you've done it for a lot of people. I don't know how you must have like different levels with which you'll work on people or work with people on. You're talking about getting people's attention. The world's eyes, it, the world itself is creaking under the weight and the strain of the UFO reality. Hmm. It is literally right now, people are like, if this is true, if UFOs represent some sort of non-human intelligence engaging humanity, which is the open question, is it that? 
they're like paying attention. So your job in, in creating, hey, let's look at this, people are coming to you. So from my perspective, what you've done for this topic is you've made it accessible for a large number of people that wouldn't it wouldn't be accessible for. The way you humanized Bob Lazar in, in the Bob Lazar movie, I did that in my film. That doesn't mean people are gonna watch my film. The fact that was a Netflix film and the fact that that was seen by hundreds of millions, I showed them the trailer. So you have helped people in this field to tackle the question that is one of the biggest questions that people are asking right now. Is this real? Is reality, as George likes to say, reality ain't what it used to be. <laughs> is that true? And, and, and so I think you've kind of played that role by embracing independent filmmakers like myself. Listen, I, I, it's very gratifying to hear. And, and, you know, and I think the additional value we can, you know, the, the additional role we can play is that we can now have conversations with these filmmakers and say, okay, so now what is the fresh insight, the fresh perspective, the fresh take? Because like anything, if, if the story starts to feel like I've heard it or seen some element of it before, then, and, and I think that's what filmmakers do best is try to give you that unique story. And so we're always trying to help them sort of carve that out. But, but, but what you're talking about is, is different than what you and I did together. And, and this is so exciting to me is that you, you really help people from the get go. Now they have a bunch of, I know, cause I've heard some stories. There's a whole bunch of footage. We have this idea for a movie. Here's like a really rough shitty cut. So are you moving into the world where when, when, when I do my next movie, where not just the trailer, but, uh, can you help guide artists from beginning to end, if it's, if it suits your business, um, on how to bring these movies into full fledged form into the world. Is this something your company might be engaging moving forward full production? Yeah. Well, that's something I want to talk about more with, uh, there's a particular project that we worked on called fall. I do want to linger for a second on some of the things that I think we can add value to in, in, in the, in the marketing realm of a film like let's talk about uh skinwalkers first uh, for skinwalker for a second i remember thinking that you guys had done some things that were really uniquely cool that we could exploit in the trailer that what weren't in that original trailer that I, I saw because i felt like they immediately went into all this razzle dazzle they had like the first 15 seconds of a bunch of kaleidoscopic cool images but i'm like how do you ground it and make people feel compelled to, to sort of lean in a little bit. And you had that one shot where you're basically just coming onto the ranch in the, in the car, in the driving vehicle, at night. driving at night. And it feels a little eerie and the stars are coming out. And I'm like, no, this is a vehicle. This is something we can actually use. And so we created that whole opening around that shot. And then we intercut it as I remember with title cards that you know began to show you know began to speak to this this phenomenon you know and explain things and uh, cattle mutilations and you know it's asking these really provocative questions like what the hell is going so you're already kind of like wait what's going on but with but but you have that sort of slow introduction so that you can be pulled into it as opposed to kind of uh being a little uh sort of thrown off to begin with and then 
and then it sort of it it continues to to uh, build. And I remember talking to the editor saying, "We need some moment where it just all stops down and something that you'll remember." And I remember you guys had in the film you had some crosstalk where you were asking it was one of some of your footage where you were being asked something by somebody and you answered it and then you walked off frame and we recut that sequence so that the question was asked and you stood there for a beat and then you walked off frame because i love it when a trailer doesn't answer a question it just raises a question i gotta say george is the best in the world at answering me and walking the fuck off frame i don't know why he does it. it's like he's it's just done I'm with done. me he's yeah, done like mic drop it's the only it's the only way but it's not even because he says something it's just like i'm done and he like walks off frame are you gonna walk off camera again no i am not i'm standing here all goddamn day that moment, by the way, was a huge moment in the in the history of this UFO transparency because I'm not sure if you know, John, but so I kind of go with George, we kind of sneak onto his studio, not sneak, but we're there and he's got all these dishes behind him. He's telling me what's about to happen. And I'm like, how do you know what's about to happen? He's telling me because I let the story, I let someone else have it. It was like a month before the New York Times story breaks about the. Oh, wow. So he says something big is happening. Of course, my job is to push him and to get him to say it on camera. So I'm like, what big is going to happen, George? What big is going to happen? And he, and he basically says, all I'm saying, and, and he told me personally, but walks off, mic drop, classic George Knapp. I got so many shots of him walking off a of frame. <laughs> I'm going to do a montage <laughs> and put them together. But that was a really big moment because in our movie, he was warning people that, hey, something big is about to happen. Now, I don't remember the timelines or when, when what happened. That feeling that you gave people of, of there is more to know and you're not going to see it right here. Man, that's the beat we live on. We know some things before they happen and, and, and we got to live that. We got to experience that. So the fact you gave that in the trailer, I felt it. Yeah, and to kind of circle back to that broader question of what makes a bad trailer? Yeah. It's like, one, it's not compelling. And, you know, sure, you as the trailer company can blame the, the footage, the IP, the, the piece that you're working on for not being compelling. But I've been in this business long enough to know that if you do your job right as a trailer maker, you can make almost anything really <laughs> compelling you you can yeah and and so and so when i watch a trailer and it's not compelling this team has failed to do their first job which is to pull me in and make me want to see more the second big thing is telling too much i mean it's a you know i did this this whole uh, interview with Good Morning America. Like, Why do trailers give away all the movie? And and it, it was hilarious because I went on this really well considered and very politically uh, astute kind of answer, which is, look, our job is to make people want to see more. If we have, if people watch something and say, oh, I've seen the movie, we haven't done our job. But it's also 
our job to be as compelling as we possibly can at every single moment to keep people engaged, surprise them, uh, perhaps distort the story in ways that isn't true to the actual movie, but is its own storytelling thing. And if you do that right, you will engage audiences, you will make them want to see it, and they cut that down to, what, uh, why are you trying to speak? Uh, hey, look, it's called advertising. You do what you do. <laughs> and I'm like, you motherfucker. But, but, but it's true. If you're watching something and you go, I know what's going to happen. Oh, I guess I don't need to see the movie. Yeah, I don't need right. to see the show. You have absolutely failed at your primary responsibility. And there's lots of reasons to blame the process. You know, again, with all the testing and all the things people want to get in. But I think we as an industry have gotten way better than we were seven or eight years ago. Because I think the trailer art is becoming more of a tease. And I think the internet is hoping to make that shift than a whole full meal of, okay, let's cram everything we can in two minutes and 30 seconds because that's how much time we're allotted uh, in a theater when, you, when people go to see the movie. And trailers are really important because people go to theaters and see trailers, we'll see movies. Yeah, I think we've, I think we've grown up a bit. One of the uh, recurrent themes, it's almost like folklore in the world of UFOs that Jeremy and I are pursuing all the time, is that the CIA or other furtive government agencies control Hollywood, that they, they have been conditioning the public through the release of TVs and movie, uh, movies over the years, TV shows, how to get ready for the impending alien invasion or the reality that ETs are here or, you know, that reality isn't what it used to be, something like that. Can you discuss the general idea of any agency that would be herding the many, many cats that exist in, uh, in, in Hollywood and, and pulling something like that off? Fuck that. Who do you work for? What is their agenda? Who's yeah. controlling you? Yeah. First of all, when, when I decloak in front of you and I start <laughs> shooting lasers at you, you'll yeah. know that the whole process has come, yeah. has been uh, accomplished. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, first of all, fascinating. I, I'm not particularly familiar with that story. Here's the thing you have to understand. Our, our industry is so fucked up and no one knows anything. That, 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 that line goes back to William Goldman in 1960-whatever. It's true. We're trying to intuit what the audience wants to see and we never really know. Yes, we become dependent on the things that have worked before. Is there gonna, is there gonna be another superhero movie? Are we gonna be working on another trailer with people in capes? You bet your ass we are, because that's worked. Um, <clears throat> however, we don't really know. And so the idea that there's some organizing intelligence, some, 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 some group that's uh, creating some kind of structure and is somehow, I mean, we're so disorganized that there's just no possible way that could work. So alien movies, ET movies, alien invasion movies, sci-fi concepts, they're made, those movies get made because the public likes them and they make money. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly but, right. So, so they, we, we know in some movies that 
and I know actually very specifically that in the abyss that there's direct consultation by people in position to inform the movie maker about what might be of truth about the UFO phenomenon, straight up. We also see in, in popular movies like uh, Close Encounters, we see that there is, you know, boxes from Lockheed Martin. We see a hand scanner, which we'll talk about with when Bob is here, Bob Lazar. <laughs> but there's this hand scanner in the movie in 1977, I believe. So we know military and intelligence agencies inform movies to get things into public consciousness. That's not like some big mystery. I think it's really cool. Now, what the intent is behind that, not quite sure. But what you're what you know, what I'm, I guess I'm wondering is, I mean, you don't see that in the industry you have, no one's ever come and said, okay, for nope, this alien needs to look like a balloon jellyfish. That's not something that someone ever, like you've never heard that kind of thing. I, I haven't. There may be a part of the process uh, at the conceptual stage that I'm ignorant of and naive to. I don't know it to be the case, but I'd certainly like to make that movie myself. There are influences on movies. I'm thinking of Independence Day. They, they, the uh, movie makers, Devlin and Emmerich, they needed the cooperation of the military and they were getting it up to the point where the Pentagon told them, we need you to take out any reference to Area 51. We don't wow. want you to use that. And they had to say, no, I mean, it was central to the whole film. But And we, we also know, Thanks. you and I have kind of uh, direct knowledge that uh, there was, a, a movie uh, called UFOs Past, Present, and Future. I've said it one time on this show. It's my favorite UFO movie because it was fully funded by the CIA. Fully funded by the CIA. This isn't conspiracy. This is true. And it, instead of like a against UFOs movie, which was a, another a DOD filmed product, this one came out a few years later with Rod Serling as the narrator from wow. Twilight Zone. And it it's almost an apology movie about lying about UFOs. It was almost like testing the waters. And they told this one filmmaker, or sorry, this one ad guy, this guy named Emmenager, and he was uh, an advertisement guy, and the CIA had employed him on numerous projects to create advertisements. And we know that to be true because of all of these things like Project Mockingbird that, it, that we didn't know is true, like with the MK Ultra programs. That's not conspiracy, guys. I thought it was, I stayed away from it. No, we, we found out through the church committee that, that our CIA had embedded people in journalism and that they were using them to promote certain narratives, which I am now hyper aware of. I totally so, uh, accept the idea that CIA or agencies like that could influence a particular project um, and, and probably have done it many times. Uh, the idea of the larger narrative of controlling, okay, over the next 60 years, we're going to plant the idea and condition the public to get ready for ET to arrive. That's the hard part. Yeah. I am undecided, but it just, I see that these things are real. And I know that, you know, so Emmenager, how the story goes is he was said, we're going to fund this. You're going to be able to deliver to the American public and the world footage over Holloman Air Force Base and this UFO coming in, dropping down beings, stepping out that, that have like Egyptian garb and are strange looking and like meeting with emissaries. So that's the story he tells. But the thing is, is that they, as soon as he does the movie, the story goes, 
they pull it. They don't let him use, they never give him the footage, but, but he's seen some of it with his own eyes, but he was able to leave a few seconds of that in the film that Rod Serling narrated. And it's debate whether or not that's actual footage from Holloman Air Force Base. George and I pretty much know now, or I, I'll speak for myself. I am pretty certain that that is real footage from a landing of a UFO spacecraft from where I don't know who's occupying it. I don't know what the, who's piloting it. I don't know. But that did happen from to the best of my knowledge. If that is true, if that is true, wow, man, then agencies do work to bring things into popular culture. But why? And on whose behest? And where is it going with that? But the point is, you've never had the CIA or Men in Black come shake you down to change something in your trailers, John? Not as far as you know. <laughs> well, I know that much. So is that a no or a yes? Yeah, no, I mean, again, I... Uh, have an agency ever asked you to just change anything? No. No. Look me in the eyes and say no? I have not had an agency say to us, you need to do this or not do Any that. individuals that were on behest of an agency ask you to change anything? Not as far as I know. Okay. It, it could enough. have been somebody who was secretly sure. representative, but sure. yeah. No. If they asked nicely, would you have done it? I mean, here's the thing. Most of <laughs> that, inf if that's happening, and I'm not saying it's not. I, I don't know. And I find it's... it fascinating and life is more interesting if it is happening. Yeah. It's happening at a place it, they're not coming directly to us because it's yeah. not ours to control. Right. You know what I mean? They could be doing it through a studio system, absolutely. And that right. would be a much riper place for infiltration. Than, right. You know, Buddha Jones. I, I just know for a fucking fact that nobody was able to change a fucking thing from the movies that, that George and I did, especially the Lazar movie. People yeah. thought that I fucking hired an FBI fake team to come and raid his place. They oh, keep, is that right? Oh That's my right. God, dude. I, like my mom reads the internet. I don't, I said, you have a comment, I'm taking your phone. But she she reads that shit and tell, told me about it. People thought, it, okay, so that was the first bar that was set. I faked an FBI raid. They're not even thinking about Bob Lazar as a human being, by the way, which is the whole point of the movie and like what he's experiencing. And the bar just kept moving, moving. What happened did happen. But I have seen how the influence on me or people that I work with, how it could easily be shaped by a narrative that is false. I will always remain independent. You know that from the way I do business is like, it's my way or the highway because this type of influence maybe good, maybe bad. I think the real story is when you hear it, even if it's fucked up because it's one person's agenda, if you hear it directly from somebody and it's their vision, their voice, at least you're gonna get something authentic. You're gonna get their authentic opinion, right? So, okay, you have not been shaken down by the men in black. Do you believe in George? Yeah, I do believe him. Okay. There were a couple of things, big picture stuff yeah. about your business that sure. Jeremy and I are interested in. Theaters are closing. You know, it seems like the only movies that get people in the post-COVID era out to theaters are these superhero big event movies. But smaller films, great films, don't do the box office anymore. A lot of the businesses move to these streaming services, Netflix, which are they're producing some great stuff. They're exposing audiences to TV series from around the world that we'd never otherwise see, which is great. But it's got to be challenging uh, for your industry to adjust to all those changes that are underway. You give us a sense, big picture of what uh, what's going on with the movie industry, where it's going, and how you and your company are adapting. 
Well, yeah, I, I would absolutely agree that there's been massive disruption. As I think we talked about, <clears throat> there's been changes in the business for a long time now. Uh, there's, even before the pandemic, there was an erosion of the number of people that would go to theaters, for example. And the studios were able to maintain uh, the revenue uh, profile by raising ticket prices. And, and that's how they, they, they maintain profitability. Uh, but then the pandemic hit and it completely turned everything sideways. And uh, there was no theatrical business for a year. And then it kind of came out of deep freeze and it blew up and then it retreated. And now it's kind of coming back again. And nobody really knows how we're, you know, if I were the, uh, you know, Nostradamus of, of this industry, I could make a lot of money by predicting what, what we should do and how to do it. But, but I think it's, it's going to have to figure itself out. Uh, I've been accused of being a pathological optimist before. It's like, <laughs> no, I love the movie-going experience. I think that the pandemic has absolutely shifted people's viewing habits. It's going to be a lot harder to get them out of out, uh, out of the comfort of their uh, living room to go to a movie. On the other hand, there are that experience is not completely replicable at home. Uh, I've watched some of the big Netflix movies that they spent $200 million on at home. One with Adam Driver with yeah. the thing in the sky. And, wow. And, and it's amazing. It's, but it's not the same experience. Right. Or, or, or Don't Look Up or, you know, Gray or whatever. You know, that they're perfectly uh, legitimate uh, entertainment vehicles. It doesn't replace the experience of going to a theater from my perspective. And I think that just broadly speaking, the studios have a vested interest in trying to bring uh, the movie-going experience back as much as possible because there's just more money to be made if they if they work. You know, the Top Guns, the Avatars, you know, the uh, uh, every everything everywhere all at once. Even those movies actually produce money in a way that a streaming uh, experience can't. So they have a vested interest in trying to bring it back. It's a question of how to do it. And I think what we keep coming back to is the originality of the, of the work itself. Like Top Gun was absolutely something that, did you see it in the theater? I, I didn't see it in the theater because I'm a total freak hermit, but um, the pilots called me after a number of them and said that we know, and they said, that's it, that's it. They nailed it. I'm like, yeah. oh, what do you mean? Because he looks fucking cool. No one's named Matt Callsign Maverick. That doesn't even exist. You can't even have that number of characters. And so, you know, and they're like, no, no. They did show it though, how it is. There's some embellishments, but they felt they were connected to it. But yeah. the, from a movie standpoint, you're saying it was just a great movie. Yeah, I mean, from a movie standpoint, the experience was so pleasant. So, so you know, it was just so fulfilling because they set the bar so high. Uh, the action was absolutely extraordinary. It was all practically shot. There were almost no visual effects. So you really had this visceral, visceral sense of being there in the moment. And it was a triumph. And, you know, Avatars obviously played really well. And so 
So the question is, how do we broaden out from there? Marvel, Marvel movies will play. As I said, we're working on uh, the TV campaign right now for Ant-Man. I think it's going to do well. Now, there are other movies, but, 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 but the slate has to be broadened. There are movies, I've, and I, I'm really encouraged by the fact that the movie... The movies like uh, movies like Every, Everything Everywhere All at Once, I thought that movie was an absolute triumph and something that you do want to see in a theater. I mean, the visuals uh, were just extraordinary. That was the most visually complex movie I've ever seen. And, uh, and, and I happen to know that um, the filmmaker spent like 18 months just plotting out the, sh the shooting schedule and what every shot was going to be like because it took, and then they shot it in a couple of months. It was crazy. So that movie was unbelievable. Uh, there's been a couple of others that I thought really worked. This movie, Megan, which is this, uh, you know, it's basically this, this crazy uh, animatronic doll that takes over <clears throat> and terrorizes this family. We took the we took our kids to see it and and people loved it and the communal experience of seeing that movie with a with hundreds of other people laughing and 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 just getting worked up was just unique and great. So I got um I got a little game I want to play and then I got one last question. Okay, there's no favorite movie on planet Earth, but. You got to tell somebody to watch them off the top of your head. We're playing something called Cinema Roulette. Beyond the Black Rainbow, Panos Cosmatos. Do you know it? No. Damn, dude, you're in for a fucking one of the greatest movies of all time. That's awesome. George, any movie. movie. Godfather, one and two, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, Searchers. No, 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 so here we go. Beyond the Black Rainbow, one movie. The Searchers. Don't know it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Great one. Um, Holy Mountain. You know it? Uh, yes, I do, but I haven't seen it. You're, you're going obscure, which I Not like. obscure, this is just visually stunning. Apocalypse Now. Spinal Tap. <laughs> Stand By Me, one of my favorites. The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. It's a Western. It's a great movie. Uh, I'm gonna go a little obscure. Little movie, Blue Ruin. Perfect little movie, made on a tiny budget. Uh, little thriller, it was great. We're going blue, Blue Velvet. It's a good one. As good as it gets. Bonnie and Clyde. Only Lovers Left Alive. You're welcome, George. You know it. Amazing. Chinatown. Epic. La Dolce Vita. La Dolce Vita. Another great one by Panos. Mandy. Mm-hmm. Mandy mm -hmm. with, with Nick Cage, the god of, te of, te of movies. Nick Cage. In Bruges. Goodfellas. We're going to leave it at Goodfellas because I feel like we're Goodfellas right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay, last question that I got for, for John. Um, you know, man, I feel like you're talking to us about movie trailers. And I know about a little bit about your life. And I know that you learn from your life and your experience. And it's like, what is it that you're so obsessed about as an artist with making these perfect trailers and building these teams to like bring this artistry forward? 
what has that taught you about yourself? How has that changed you? Has your work at, in any way, the way you see trailers being made, the way that you perfect your craft, has that changed the way that you relate to your daughter, to your wife, to your family, to the world, to the people around you? Has it or has it not? Well, I love that question. It's a great question. I don't want to give you some dumb, glib answer, but I would say this. It's taught me to lead with love. And by that I mean, if I don't love the thing that I'm trying to do, it, wh whether it's utterly challenging or perhaps even a, a piece that I don't particularly, uh, you know, a piece of work that I don't particularly like that I'm working on, but that thing that I'm doing, if I don't lead with love and I don't love doing it, it's gonna, f I'm gonna, it's gonna somehow be there and you're gonna feel it. And I feel the same way about being a dad, a husband, to, uh, and being a friend. It's like, you just have to be all in on the experience that you're trying to share with people. And yeah, I guess that's... Who would think John Long, 35, 40 years later, ends up being like a, straight arrow pillar of the community it's saying know. let's lead with love yeah uh -huh. i don't get what buddha jones is but i feel like we just heard from the buddha jones himself thank you so much man appreciate oh it never have so few had so much to tell but could say so little Following this little weaponized, the presentation of Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, Dark Horse Entertainment, and Cadence 13 Studios. Available now for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your shows.